This is the last week of our Revealed series. We've been going through this time of epiphany. We've been going through this time of Jesus revealing himself in this first chapter of Mark. And now we're going to take a little bit of a path, uh, the, the garden path, toward another moment in Mark's gospel where Jesus reveals himself. We're moving from epiphany into Lent. See, if you went to a church this morning that focused on the Super Bowl or Valentine's Day, you'd forget that Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And we're moving into a time of Lent, a time of suffering, a time of recompense, a time when we are repenting. And so we want to do what God has called us to do, to be faithful to the scriptures and faithful to his son. Pastor Nicole was here last week and she gave a great message. She was so good in telling us that Jesus reveals face to face who God is. And that, that Jesus was not swayed by the opinion of the people around him. It might have been Super Bowl time, but he said, you know what? We're just going to tune all of that out and we're just going to go and pray. And we're going to go find a secluded spot and we're going to pray. And Jesus went face to face to reveal God to those people. And so this morning we're going to jump way ahead in the story. Because it's the highest point in Mark's gospel. There's three main pillars, the baptism, the transfiguration, and the resurrection. Those are the three big pillars. And so this is the halfway point of Mark's gospel in chapter 9. And the reason that we do that here is because this is the ultimate revelation to the three disciples of who Jesus is. That Jesus has just been playing around. Here are a few magic tricks that I can do. Here are a few people that I can heal. Here are a few, a few uh, pithy sayings that I can give to you. But Jesus has led them up the mountaintop and he's revealed himself to them there. Let's read together Mark 9, 2 through 9. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified, you think? A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had ridden, risen from the dead. It's good for us to be here. That's what he says. It's good for us to be here. I say this all the time. Oh, it's good to be here. How are you doing today? Happy to be here. Happy to be here. And sometimes that's the way we feel. I'm just happy to be out of the house. I'm happy to be away from that situation. Oh, it's just feeling so good to be at church because I need someone to worship for me. I need someone to fill me back up because God seems so far. It's just so good to be here, isn't it? I wish I could stay here all the time. 
I was a camp pastor for a couple summers, one of the best jobs I ever had. I loved being a camp pastor. There's a feeling at the end of the week in the other counselors, uh, in the kids, and the campers, and the staff. You get to Friday, you get to Saturday, and you're like, oh, man, I wish I could be at camp all year round. I wish I could just take this feeling, this high that I'm on, and just do it year round. Man, I would be such a good Christian if I felt like this all the time, if Jesus were around me all the time, I could just worship him and everything would be good. I would be so happy. It's good for us to be here, Jesus. We're at the mountaintop. God and his glory is shining down. Our old friends Moses and Elijah are here. By the way, how did they know that? These guys are over a 1,000 years old. How did they recognize Moses and Elijah? The Bible doesn't tell us. That's just one of those things you can chew on later, all right? It's good for us to be here. Let's build some tents. Let's build some shelters. Let's stay up here forever because I love this feeling. It is so good for us to be here, to experience this to be on the mountaintop, to see God's glory come in the cloud. Man, this feels good. Can we just stay here a while? They're witness to the divine glory of God. Notice something that this is what Moses has done twice now. Moses there standing on the mountain in the clouds with the glory of God passing over. God speaking there on the mountaintop. Oh, yeah, this is good. And what was Moses' feeling? I don't want to go back down to them. I don't want to go back down to your people. Because down there, there's heartache. Down there, there's idolatry. Down there, there are messy people that I have to deal with. They're your people, God. You go before me. You straighten all of that up. I'm going to say a couple prayers, but really I've been invited to the mountaintop. I should stay up here where it's foggy, but I feel the presence of God in my life. <coughs> and it seems like it's good for us to be here. One of the most notable uses of the word dwelling, of shelters, of tents, in the Septuagint is the reference to the tabernacle, that portable earthly dwelling place of God among the Israelites during their wanderings in the wilderness. That building that they had that stored the Ark of the Covenant. It's the same word here that Peter says, let us build some shelters. Let's build a tabernacle. God is here. Let's build a church around that. Let's contain all of that. Because it's so good to see God. It's so good to be in his glory. Because the tabernacle, that was considered the place where God's presence would dwell with his people. It symbolized his closeness and his guidance and protection. And so Peter's suggestion indicates a misunderstanding of the nature of Jesus' mission and the transitory moment of the transfiguration. 
Once again, the disciples completely missed the point. They've been with him now for nine chapters of the book. And they have failed to realize the power of Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the one that has been called. And you thought that these were just party tricks. You thought that I was just some prophet. Well, let me take you up the mountain. Let me, let me show you the glorious nature of God in your midst. The building of a physical shelter would have been an attempt to contain or prolong a moment meant to reveal Jesus' divine glory and foreshadow the coming of the kingdom in its fullness, not through earthly structures, not through giant cathedrals, not through community centers, but through the life of Jesus, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That, G that God's divine glory is revealed not just in the life of Jesus, but in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to be in God's presence, were you watching? Were you paying attention to how you should have a life that's built around that? Christ as center. Discipleship means following Jesus, not just in moments of revelation and glory, but also through trials and suffering of life. That when we're called to be disciples of Christ, when we're called to bear witness to those great things, to God's glory and grace and love, a lot of times we chase that mountain high. A lot of times we think it must be extravagant, it must be big, it must be this great idea. And then we're right there with Peter, misunderstanding the use of this moment, this revelation, this who God is in the form of Jesus. And so just as Peter and James and John were called to witness both the transfiguration and the crucifixion, we too are invited to embrace this full spectrum of the Christian experience. We don't get mountaintops without crucifixions. We don't get the highs and the big extravagance of God without the mundane, workaday love of people together in a faith community. And we're always thinking that every day must be like the Super Bowl. See what I did there? When it's just practice, everyday fundamentals. We're thinking the wrong thing. And we need to reflect on our own call are we seeking only the mountaintop experiences or are we willing to walk with him through those valleys? Because Jesus is going to lead us to those great moments of revelation. We're going to know that he's in our life. We're going to know that the Holy Spirit is there empowering us. We're going to know that God is real through these very big, important moments. And then that's it. 
We don't hear from God for a very long time afterward. And so in our faith, are we only seeking after a mountaintop experience? Are we only being, being wanting to go to that mountain place where Jesus stands there reveling in God's glory? Are we willing to be disciples as he leads us down the mountain as well? Because you know who's waiting at the bottom of that mountain? The other disciples that didn't have this experience. The ones whose faith is built on believing and not by sight. The ones who didn't get the revelatory experience at the top of the mountain. And behind those disciples are a group of people who are hurting and hurting and hurting and hurting. And so we can brush off an experience like this. We can brush it off and we can say, you know what? I want to stay up here on the mountain. I want to only chase God when he's really big. I only want a faith in a God who can do huge things for me. And if God can't deliver me in this moment, and if God can't send angels in this moment, if God can't send me a prophet to speak truth in my life, I don't want anything to do with it because it's good for me to be here with this God. But the God in the valleys, when I come down from the mountain, I don't want him. Something must be missing from that. Something must be missing. Discipleship involves a commitment to follow Jesus in all circumstances, recognizing that our path may lead through difficult and challenging times. We might have to walk through a crowd of people who are hurting. We might have to visit with people that don't look and think like us. We might have to interact with them. We might even have to invite them to church. Can we do it? Can we be the kind of disciple that Jesus is calling us to the top of the mountain and then leading us back down? Because we don't get to stay in the mountain. It actually is not good for us to be there. It actually is not what Jesus has called us to do. It is not the moment that we're all working for. It's like if, if you play golf. I'm, I'm an okay golfer. I'm like mediocre. Um, but I, I play, when I play golf, I hit like a bunch of terrible shots, and then I hit one really good one. And I think that's what secretly all golfers are doing. They're just chasing that next really good shot. Because otherwise, it, you, you just are not very good at it. But then that one, oh, man, that was a beauty. I'll talk about that shot for a couple of years. Because that thing was so good. We just, we just continue. Or the big fish stories that we always get. You could spend years fishing. And you'll catch one really big one, and that's all you need. That's all you need for your friends to tell them that story. Because I think secretly all fishermen are just chasing that one really big fish. And addicts, you know, 
They are always chasing that high. They get a, a good hit of that special thing that they've put into their body. And they're just always chasing that feeling once again. I know I can feel like that again. I know I can be on the mountaintop, away from the problems, away from the people, away from all of those other things. If I just do it one more time, this will be the last time. I can't do it anymore. I just want one more high. And our relationships with each other, especially with our spouses, we're always chasing that honeymoon high. We think that love looks like these great, big, grand gestures. That love, oh man, I, I think I'm falling out of love with them. Love is just fading away because it wasn't like it is now. We had a honeymoon and it was amazing and, and we're riding that high and now we're 15, 20, 30, 40 years into this. And it just doesn't feel like that anymore. So maybe I don't love him. Maybe I don't love her anymore. Because it just doesn't feel like it did when we were at camp for a week. It doesn't feel like it was when we hit that incredible golf shot. We're chasing these things that don't exist. We're chasing after ghosts, these mountaintop experiences. You see, love of each other is in the mundane, the workaday. It's when we hold hands in the store. It's when we put away our phone and we listen without distractions. That's how we know we value another person. That's where love stands. Faith is the same way. To be a faithful disciple of Christ doesn't exist on the mountaintop every day. We can't, we can't sustain that. The workaday, mundane faith of a disciple is in the everyday. It's in the Monday through Saturday. It's in those valleys and those trenches when we don't hear from God right away. And we're chasing something like God should be here. God should be here with me now. And I don't feel that. And so the question is, how do we feel it? How do we make sure that we are living and dwelling with Christ even when we come down off the mountain? Peter wants to make that a permanent experience. Peter wants to be there always and say, you know what? I have a reluctance to accept sacrifice and suffering, so I just want to be here when things are good. But these disciples are teaching us something. They're teaching us something about how we can live that through the cross, through trials and suffering and daily denials, that we truly come to know and experience the glory of God. That the glory of God is just not exclusively found on the mountaintop, but the glory of God is found in our struggles. The glory of God is found in our suffering. The glory of God is found in those moments where we feel so far from God. In those struggles of our relationships and our addictions and those people standing behind us who are hurt and hurt and hurt and hurt. 
and those people that we talk to every day who have a smile on their face and they're like, well, I'm just, I'm just happy to be here, really, because my life is in shambles, but I'm happy to be here. Those people that are crying out through their pain, those clenched teeth, and they're saying, please talk to me. How do I know that you love me? How do I know that you value me? It's not in big grand gestures. It's not in like buying them a new car or repairing their house for them. It's just listening. How we listen to each other shows that we love them. Elijah says to Elisha, were you watching? God says to the disciples standing there, listen to him. It's the only command in this passage. By the way, Jesus doesn't talk at all. He's chatting it up with Moses and Elijah, sure. But he doesn't have to say one word in his defense. God the Father comes and says, listen to him. And how we listen shows how we care. How we listen shows that we are ready to accept the struggles and shaping our lives around Christ as center. And so we encourage each other that the shape of our faith, the shape of who we are, it all comes from listening to the voice of God, even through our struggles, even through our sufferings. All of these experiences are so integral to our spiritual growth and an understanding of God's glory that God has revealed on the mountain and in the valleys. But God grants us these moments of revelation and spiritual insight, and often in unexpected ways and times, and it helps to deepen our relationship with him. This is what the transfiguration shows. It shows that God wants to deepen our understanding of who he is. Why is it so important? Because it deepens our understanding of who God is. Why should we talk about the transfiguration rather than the Super Bowl or Valentine's Day? Because the transfiguration shows that God wants to deepen our understanding of who he is. He wants to be closer to us. He wants to dwell with us. And so the question we have to ask after reading a passage like this is how does God choose to dwell among his people? How does God show up in those moments? And how God chooses to dwell is the most important thing we can think about him. How does he come near to us? Does he even come near to us? Or is he just a hands-off God? Is he just a God that exists on the mountaintop in those big, extravagant moments of glory and power? We know God wants to dwell among us because he tells us to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to my son. This is the way that God comes to dwell among us. Do you see this through the scriptures? The more that we know Jesus, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to God. 
the closer we understand that God is revealing himself through Jesus. And he's dwelling among us every time that we can listen to him. And so this phrase, it underscores the importance of being attentive to Jesus' words and teachings. It shows the centrality of Jesus' word in God's revelation. By commanding the disciples to listen to him, God is indicating that Jesus is the central figure in divine revelation, that he is the chosen one. He is the elected one. A lot of times, my Calvinist friends want to throw around the word elected. We're elected people. We've been chosen by God. Jesus was chosen by God. And through him, we become chosen. We become elected. There is a centrality of Jesus' revelation. He positions Jesus as the ultimate source of truth. Listen to him. Do what he says because this is the kingdom of God. This listen to them also prepares the disciples for discipleship and mission. For the disciples, the command to listen to Jesus is both a personal call to deeper discipleship and a preparation for their future mission of taking that to the people. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they would be tasked with spreading his teaching and making disciples of all nations. So being attentive to Jesus' words is crucial for their ability and our ability to carry out this mission faithfully and effectively. But listening to Jesus is also this pathway to spiritual transformation. That not only is Jesus transfigured in that moment, but listening to Jesus transforms us as well. The New Testament frequently associates hearing Jesus' words with spiritual transformation and growth. In Romans 10, 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Attentiveness to Jesus' teaching is presented as essential for developing our faith, understanding the kingdom of God, and transforming into his likeness. But also, I think the biggest one is this, is that anytime we listen to Jesus' words, anytime we listen to Jesus speak, we have a closer encounter with Jesus. It's a way to encounter him personally and relationally. In John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd whose sheep hear his voice. <clears throat> Listening to Jesus is a way of deepening our relationship with him experiencing his presence and participating in his life. Notice the command to listen to him is just after Peter says we should build some shelters so we can all stay here forever. And God says, you want to be in my presence forever? Listen to Jesus. You want to know me deeper? Listen to Jesus. You want that mountaintop high in everything that you do? Listen to Jesus. Because God is revealing himself in those words that Jesus is speaking. It is good for us to be here in moments of spiritual revelation 
but it's not good to stay here. Because as disciples, we are always moving. We're always on the lookout for those lows, for those things that come next. Don't be obsessed with going from mountaintop to mountaintop, for finding faith in God and just these big revelatory experiences. But know that there is faith in the everyday. So how does, how does God choose to dwell among his people? In what way does he come Oh, we know that it's not through permanent structures anymore. We know that God is revealing himself not in a tabernacle or a cathedral or where we choose to meet on any given week. God is revealing himself through our bodies, through our hearts, through our love. Jesus embodies God's presence and John 1.14 states, using the same concept of dwelling, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood. And through Christ, God's presence is no longer confined to some physical structure, but it's made manifest in a person. And through us as people as well. Because as disciples of Jesus, we reflect the things that he does and says, the way he lives his life. We listen to his words, and then they become a way to transform us into new people. How does God choose to dwell among his people? There is the spiritual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual indwelling signifies a more intimate and personal relationship between God and each believer transcending the limitations of any physical structure or location. And where does the Holy Spirit live? In the body. Not just mine, but in ours collectively. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the collective reflection of who Jesus is. The New Testament reveals that the church, the community of believers, is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 6.19. The community of believers is the collective form of the body of Christ on earth. And so we understand God's dwelling emphasizes the idea that God's presence is not tied to any specific geographic location, but is manifest within the community of faith through love and service and worship. That Jesus is revealed as we embody his presence. That Jesus is revealed, that God is revealed, the Holy Spirit comes alive when we as the church Embody his presence. That's our whole purpose as a church, is to embody his presence. That's why we exist. It's our mission statement of this church, to form people who practice the presence of Christ for the sake of their neighbors. And Jesus is revealed and God is revealed as we become practitioners of that, as we embody his presence through the community and faith, and love, and service, and worship. 
That's why we love Sunday so much, because we worship the things that we love. And we try and do that through the week. But are we trying to fill a big hole? Are we paying attention to those small places, those mundane, everyday places that Jesus comes And so it's in worship and prayer. It's in love and community. Jesus said that all people would know his disciples by their love for one another. Acts of kindness, mercy, and justice are practical expressions of God's character and kingdom, revealing his presence in the world. And then there's communal acts of justice and mercy. The church's engagement of acts of mercy and justice and care for the marginalized, the people on the edges, the people waiting at the bottom of the mountain to say, where is God? Does he dwell among us? Does he love even me? It reflects God's heart for the world and manifests his presence in everything that we do. By addressing physical and social and spiritual needs, the church becomes a tangible expression of God's kingdom on earth. See, it's not just a place to collect more believers. It's a place to reflect the tangible love of God, the glory of his presence. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the community of faith becomes the instrument through which God chooses to reveal himself and work in the world today. See, here you were thinking that epiphany, the revelation of Christ in Mark, in the Gospels, was just something for the Gospels. It was just good stories for back then, but Jesus doesn't come and transfigure himself today. But I'm here to tell you that we can transform our communities by expressing the centrality of Christ in everything that we do. When we as a church manifest Christ, when we embody the spirit of God in community, in love, in service, There it is. That's the transfiguration. That's the importance of the body of Christ working and knowing that Christ is the center of all things.